I really liked Stefan Edberg. I think he was my hero uh, growing up. That was right about the time I really got into tennis. He was having his most success. So uh, it was a natural hero for me to have. I had no other really Swedish heroes. Uh, I think Edberg was like the number one. Hello and welcome to Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. I'm your fantastic co-host, Valerie Garcia, sitting here with the best host in the world, Mr. <laughs> Philip Kim. Fist bump on that one. Yes. <laughs> and I'm your not-so-fantastic host, what? Philip Kim, also known as the director of tennis for the city of Azusa in sunny Southern California. Valerie, I'm so excited about Sweden again. This is part two of In Search for the Spirit of Stefan Egberg. Where is that spirit? It's in Sweden. It is. So we go all the way over to Sweden and we talk to someone who was actually born and raised in Sweden. His name is Jonas Eriksson. And Jonas is a really famous podcaster, blogger, and tennis reviewer as well as tennis player. Yes, I'm particularly fond of his website where I can read articles on racket reviews and if I'm not in the mood to read, I check out his YouTube page and I watch him do all the racket reviews. It's very insightful before I am choosing a racket. And of course, the website we're talking about is TennisNerd.net. TennisNerd.net follows the ATP World Tour closely and writes about the tour. They write about new tennis gear and other related items, and it's all hosted by Jonas Erickson. And he does such a great job reviewing rackets. And as I say in our interview, he has over 400,000 views on YouTube. Impressive. Yeah, he's a marketing director, writer, and also an active player. You can actually see lots of videos of him playing tennis with his friends and trying out different rackets. And he's got game, let me tell you. Nice. Maybe yeah. he can give me some lessons. <laughs> well, you'd have to. You and I would have to fly all the way out to Malta because we even, should. We definitely should. And he actually invited us to at the end of the show. We've had the good fortune of having him as a guest on our show to talk about what it's like to grow up in Sweden, what tennis is like in Sweden, and to share with us his insight about the world of tennis. And you know, of course, the most important thing was his feedback on his interaction with. The great Roger Federer. He does talk about that, so I'm sure <laughs> listeners are going to stay tuned for that. Yes, I mean, that would be my key point to listen to. So I have lots of questions for Jonas, and I think we'll learn a lot from him. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So this show specifically is talking about Sweden. I had the wonderful opportunity to travel to Stockholm and visit a very good friend of mine who lives in Mashta. And yeah, yeah, Mashta. Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I got to stay there for two weeks, and it was amazing. I loved Sweden. What a wonderful country to visit. It was incredibly clean. And then, of course, being a tennis nerd myself, going to Sweden is really exciting because Sweden has such a rich, rich tennis history. It does. It really does. And that's the way when I was uh, growing up, there were so many heroes to look up to. And I think that's one of the reasons that the sport became as big as it was during that time, and I grew up in the 80s, uh, played tennis in the 90s up to before I moved abroad. And um, there was Edberg, Villander. Obviously, it started with Bjorn Borg, um, Gustafsson, Norman, Larsson, so many players. In the end, there was Söderling, and after that, there has been a bit of a, a drought in Swedish tennis. But uh, we have a good history of, of in the sport since the 70s, I would say. Right. I just read an article that talked about how after Robin Söderling, 
there has not been another Swedish player in the top 300. And they were comparing the drought in Sweden to the drought in America, very similar, how we all had our heyday in the 70s and 80s as countries, but we've been kind of struggling as a country ever since. Even though this is a show about Sweden, you don't actually live in Sweden anymore, is that right? No, I live in Malta, a small island in the Mediterranean, quite close to Italy. It's like 90 minutes with the ferry from Sicily, the island of Italy. So um, I moved there because of work reasons uh, in 07. And I've stayed here pretty much ever since. I, I uh, had a stint in Stockholm uh, last year. We did nine months, me and my family. But in the end, we were too accustomed to the Mediterranean weather and lifestyle. So we came back, which works really well for us. Also, the weather here is, is quite uh, optimal for playing tennis, uh, although it gets very humid in August and September. So that's you need to be uh, fit to play in, during those months. Yeah, it's kind of tough, uh, from what I understand in Sweden, to be in the winter and the cold for eight months of the year. One of the reasons that tennis uh, is, is tough to develop in such a country is, is obviously that it's, it gets expensive to play indoors for a lot of juniors. Uh, there's not enough courts maybe for everyone to play. Uh, when I lived in Stockholm last year, I, I struggled finding two hours consecutively to play. I, I like to book up two hours at least and not only play one hour because <laughs> you know, after 55 minutes, there's always someone waiting who wants to get the court and court time is quite expensive. So it's, um, it's a climate thing in a way that you can actually play outdoors all the time. Uh, we, we used to have a lot of public courts when I grew up. Uh-huh. But a lot of them have become kind of housing areas more. Uh, they have realized that some real estate or some ground was too valuable to host a tennis court. So instead they built apart- apartments there and housing. So I think there's less public courts now. And I obviously that, that also affects how many people grow up playing tennis and uh, becoming interested in the sport. So could you tell us how much it costs to play in Stockholm on those courts? If you want to play on a decent court in Stockholm uh, indoors, it's about 30 euros an hour. Uh, I would say maybe it's 35, 40 bucks US dollars. So it's it doesn't might not sound expensive to everyone. I mean, if you compare it to London, for example, where it's even more expensive. But it's if you want to play a lot of tennis, it adds up. Then you have summer rates when you can play for 10 euros an hour for indoors as well, and you can play outdoors on the clay. But it's such a short summer probably except for this one, because this was the best summer in Sweden in 200 years. <laughs> so you went at a good time. So it's usually you have to rely on these indoor courts and, and it's, it can get quite expensive. Yeah, that that did come up where they talked about how this summer was the hottest summer, I guess, in Swedish history. A lot of talk about obviously global warming and stuff coming up because it's such a drastic change. Who knows when it will come again, but certainly was a shocker to most Swedes. And really felt like with tennis, feels like we've experienced global warming. We we had the hottest Wimbledon. New York was incredibly hot uh, just a week ago. So it seems like it's really impacting the game as well. It, it sure is. I mean, if you looked at Federer when he uh, lost, his, uh, lost his match against Milman uh, in the, I think, round of 16, he, he looked like a completely different person. He looked completely flustered and uh, red in the face. He wasn't breathing properly. He obviously had issues focusing, which you never see. I mean, he, he hardly breaks a sweat normally. So it was a strange thing to see him struggle so much with the heat. But then you realize how unbearably hot it must have been because these guys are obviously all very fit. Uh, they can play in any, pr- pretty much any condition. They practice a lot in crazy conditions in Dubai or really hot places. But this uh, this summer was uh, was really harsh in uh, New York. So uh, I think it m- must have been tough for, for a lot of players to deal with that, that those conditions. 
Yeah, it was a heartbreak for me to watch Federer go down. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> it was a surprise, I guess, for for most people because that match just looked like a, you know, a parenthesis in the in the journey towards. Right. Towards, bigger and better things but right. uh, and and you know Djokovic next round could have gone either way I guess with the way Djokovic is playing but still that was what everyone was looking forward to and then took a turn for the for the more boring result yeah that was crazy how he talked about he was struggling with heat and he felt like he couldn't get air in his lungs it seems like it's affecting us definitely as a game what was the weather like when you were young when you were playing in Sweden when you were growing up how did you practice how did you get into the game well, I, I started on the um, outdoor kind of asphalt, concrete, uh, some clay public courts. I mean, they, they built tennis courts kind of everywhere back then because of all the good players we had. We had a good momentum in Swedish tennis. Uh, so there was plenty of uh, courts to play. Not always the best courts, but at least they were there, you know. I, you obviously, had, all summer you played outdoors. And that was great. Try to kind of, even in rain sometimes I remember playing. Obviously, I went to tennis school, uh, played indoors a lot there. Didn't enjoy it as much to play kind of group practice and my mother couldn't afford private lessons. So I think if I would have gone into the sport more, I would have enjoyed more private teaching. So I think that one of the issues we have in tennis today is that it's for most people, it's very expensive if you want to become a serious tennis player. There's always an issue there. You, you need to travel a lot. You need to have a proper physical coach. You need to have a proper tennis coach. Uh, so it, it quickly gets quite expensive so it's a wonderful sport uh, the best in my mind in the world but it has some uh, some downsides when it comes to to cost of playing but yeah i play mostly in, indoors but the summers i enjoyed outdoors uh, a lot of people like to play tennis it was more of a kind of a thing you did back then compared to now where where more courts are empty when you walk around uh, i think this summer maybe changed that a little bit because people like to be outdoors and it's a good sport for them but before kind of everybody knew how to play tennis a little bit so you could really see that kind of dramatic shift over the years when we had less and less international success and how people then took to the game in a different way and went to other sports that maybe is more natural with the Swedish weather, which is uh, kind of ice hockey and uh, obviously you know, soccer. So it was, it was quite, quite different back then from when it, what it is now. When I was visiting in Sweden, our listeners will have heard visiting with my friend's daughter, who obviously grew up in Sweden, and she told me that they don't have tennis in the public schools, that they never learn that. Whereas here in America, it actually is integrated in public school as uh, physical education if they have tennis courts nearby. Was that your experience? I think there was some schools uh, that had that kind of more involved. It, it has never been a, a thing like that. I think that sounds brilliant that you, you have it as a part of education. I mean, the idea back then from what, what I remember was that you, should, uh, you were supposed to try as many sports as you could, uh, which kind of is, is the, I think, the same way you approach it in the U.S. Yes. Uh, and I remember, I think, we, we had maybe one or two lessons where you could actually play tennis. So it was encouraged to play tennis. But back then you had more courts, obviously. So uh, it wasn't uh, an issue for the school to, to kind of rent a big, you know, a tennis hall or stuff like that. So I think that has changed for the lesser good of tennis, you know. So do you think growing up at the time that you did when tennis was, I guess, a lot more popular, is that why it became a passion for you later in your life? Maybe. It's a, good, a really good question. I, um, I, I was 
quite obsessed with tennis mechanics when I was kind of seven, eight, which is, is weird. But I was, you know, walking in the streets, I was doing backhands and forehands, kind of air, <laughs> air shots, sometimes hitting elderly in the stomach and stuff. Uh, it was a bit of, embar- a bit of an embarrassment for my mother. Uh, but I, I, I always liked the kind of um, the mechanics of tennis and the kind of beauty of the aesthetics of the sport. It's kind of like dancing in a way. I was never a dancer, but I, but in tennis I really loved that, and also the geo- geometry of the game. So I've always been kind of tennis obsessed in a way. I had a period where, where it dipped, but then it has grown back again, and it's I think it's growing increasingly uh, ever since. Um, but obviously it had, could have a, a point. I mean, you used to have all the big tournaments televised. Uh, obviously, there was no Netflix and other things, uh, internet stealing your attention back then. So I think it was, um, you know, you watched the French Open, you, there were more play, uh, Swedish players playing. So there was a reason for other people to watch, even if they were not as interested in the sport. So I think it, you, you were just dragged into that world uh, quite easily. I think that happens in most sports if you have a successful countryman or a team uh, it's, it's more natural for everyone to rally around it and become a part of that sport uh, as soon as that goes away there's no natural way for people to insert themselves in that in that scenery so it and that's what happens in sweden now now we don't have people don't really have a reason to follow tennis anymore which is a shame yeah i think that's the same in america especially the point about being televised maybe in the 70s they had the slams on national television so it was a nationalized sport that was right after your favorite show. And so you got to see a lot of tennis being played on television, whereas now you really have to search for it. And I think it's also the media landscape currently where, sure, it's on YouTube, but you have to look for it on YouTube because everything else is on YouTube. We have ESPN, and I'm kind of excited that Amazon Prime is taking on tennis now. So hopefully that will help tennis as well. But uh, it definitely is not televised in the way that it was historically. So who were your heroes during that time? I really liked Stefan Edberg. I think he was my hero uh, growing up. Uh, my, my tennis style is not really reminiscent in any way or form because it's a very difficult game to play. That was right about the time I really got into tennis. He was having his most success. So uh, it was a natural hero for me to have. I always liked Andre Agassi for some reason more than Sampras. So those two guys, I think, I had no other really Swedish heroes. Uh, I think Edberg was like the number one. I really liked the way he carried himself, you know, on court and off court. He was always a gentleman. Uh, He was always a good role model for for people growing up, Uh, which is an interesting comparison to today's game where a lot of the next generation, they, they don't have the best track record of, uh, of court on court behavior so, and and he was kind of a hero in that sense back then i think also a hero for federer for example so uh, that that's he was my my biggest hero at that time sure and coaching roger federer reinserted him back into the current conversation which helped to really bring him to the light i read an incredible statistic that back in 1988 uh, Mats Wielander won three slams and Edberg won the other one. <laughs> so it was a yeah. Swedish sweep. Must have been an incredibly proud time for Sweden. Yeah, and that was about the time I got into tennis as well. So I think it makes sense in that way. Uh, still, I mean, Edberg is, is closer to my memory and heart than, than Wielander, although he had huge success. And, and Wielander has been more in touch with tennis uh, after his career on Eurosport and and as a coach, while Edberg has been more in the background. Obviously, he coached Federer, which was which was great, 
Uh, but that was kind of a short stint, and then he has have a, have held a low profile after that. Any sense as a native why in the 70s and 80s the Swedes swept? They won four Davis Cup titles during that time. To have a country relatively as small as Sweden taken all the slams in 1988, pretty amazing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I read an interesting book. I don't remember the name. It's in Swedish, sadly, but that there was really a group of players coming from the same uh, area in Sweden. They had a good coach and, and a lot of the success grew from that one area, that one city in Sweden. Uh, and there was like a group of friends and they became kind of like a tight knit team that traveled around, played internationally and they played against each other. They, you know, cheered on each other. So I think that was a big reason for the success that they could ha have each other to rely on. Back then, I think tennis is more of an individual sport now for players, for pro players, than it was back then. Then you had, there was more pride in Davis Cup. There was more of a team feeling when you traveled around. There was maybe not as much extravagance, not as much social media, obviously, and, and paparazzi and those things that might uh, be a negative thing for many players. Uh, so I think that that team, that group of players brought each other on and that was one of the big reasons for the immense success we had in the end of the 80s and then beginning of the 90s. Yeah, I think the statistic is that you guys won 24 of the 76 Grand Slam events from 1974 to 1992. Just one fewer than the 25 which the American men won during that time. So it's really a crazy stat. <laughs> crazy stat. So it's very paralleled to American tennis, the decline in Sweden and the decline in America as well. And kind of notably missing is Swedish women. Yeah, I think um, I, I I don't really have a good explanation for that. I think maybe the reason for the big success at the time was that friendship, that gang of friends, you know. And maybe there wasn't really a a reason. For the you know for tennis growing as a part of the you know federation doing a good job etc. I think the the Swedish Tennis Federation have have received lots of criticism afterwards for not really going on the bandwagon and trying to ride the wave and create more interest around tennis. They got a, probably a bit uh, lazy uh, at that time and thought well okay more success is to come of course because we have all these great players. But then it just died off because I did, they didn't put enough effort in. They didn't make sure to maintain tennis as a vital sport or, a, you know, more public courts, more tennis in the schools. So I think that that was a setback for Sweden, that we became, we relied too much on the previous generation and then they, they became lazy simply, which is, uh, which is sad today when you're, when you're uh, we have, I think we have one player that is close to top 100, uh, Elias Ymer. Uh, and his brother is also a good player. He's maybe 300 in the world. So that's pretty much what we have today. Stark difference from winning all the slams in one year in 1988. <laughs> it's a big change, yeah. Sadly, the same for American tennis. So on the personal level, you play a lot of tennis now in Malta, but you also played in Stockholm. Did you get a sense of what tennis is like in Sweden today? Yeah, I think I got a pretty good sense. I, I mean, Malta is a small island. There is quite a few co courts, n not many clay courts, sadly, uh, like in Spain, but more concrete courts, uh, hard courts. In in Sweden, you, you, there is the issue of um, of court costs, as I mentioned before. Uh, I think the, the team tennis is still a big thing in Sweden. Uh, not a big thing uh, in terms of sports uh, in the country, but people who play tennis 
in Sweden, they like to play team tennis. So they, they have this big system, league system, which is working really well. I think people are kind of proud to play for their club, the various club teams they have. I had to put myself on a list to, to play for the club that I, I joined when I moved to Sweden again. Uh, and I never never got the chance to play for the club because I was accepted now that I've already moved back to Malta. It's a shame, but I met a lot of players, a lot of tennis enthusiasts in Sweden, and, and I, the passion is there. It's just in such smaller numbers, uh, and, and that's a sad thing that it's uh, it's there. I think there is there is potential, um, but you you need that one or two or three top players to to come up for for kind of public interest to grow. Otherwise, it stays kind of more of a fringe sport. How long did it take you to get accepted onto the league from the time you applied? Well, it took almost a year, I think. Yeah, I would say a year. So that's something quite, like that. That's quite a barrier to <laughs> joining the league. That is a barrier, and I think I think that shows how um, maybe that I mean there isn't enough uh, leagues. This was this was the top league in Sweden, but it's still or or one of the top clubs. But it, it's so they have a lot of obviously competition and people already on the lists but if you talk about the royal uh, swedish tennis club which is the host of the stockholm open every year i know the list to become a member there is 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 huge so it's very difficult just to become a member it's quite expensive to become a member because it's the royal club they don't have that many courts either uh, so i think that the accessibility to a good tennis club especially in a big city as stockholm is um, is not really good enough you need need more clubs more courts uh, more action in tennis uh, for it to be viable as kind of uh, that you can play every day, you know. So that that's that's an issue that it takes such a long time to just get into that activity. Is the league system run by a Swedish organization? I assume uh, similar to the USTA. They're yeah, yeah, exactly. It's run by the Swedish Tennis Federation, uh, and I think it seems to be run pretty well. I mean, I didn't get the chance to to test it uh, properly, but I have friends playing there, and it seems to be run decently well i think they're they're trying to improve it and improve interest around it and uh, we have obviously some itf tournaments as well for uh, if you go up a level uh, there are some other like the winter tour in sweden where we're good we're advanced but still recreational players can play tournaments so there is a tennis life in sweden for sure but it's it's far less than it has been so i think that's my issue becomes comparing with with what i know before and that's that's um, a bit sad but there is life in in swedish tennis uh, but they desperately need the success uh, internationally i think for it to um, kick off again you know i worked with usta here in the united states for a little bit and they talked about how the statistic is that there are more people over the age of 60 playing tennis in the u.s than under the age of 40. wow yeah that's crazy i i think i we don't have that issue in sweden as much i would say that's more of an issue in in malta where i am based now that you have um it's become a sport. It is a sport, more like you know, uh, casual social doubles you know, for people who are members of a club that you meet up and you play doubles. It's not that kind of competitive sport for younger people. There is obviously one or two academies that teach uh, young players and some promising players the game, but it's it's become more of that social sport, which I don't think is. Is good. It should be there as well, but you need to have that competitive atmosphere and that you have a lot of tournaments. You, you There's life in that sport in the country. When I was in Sweden, I got to play at a uh, club called Stigtuna. 
Yeah, yeah, okay, I know that one. Yeah, and it was a great experience, a beautiful indoor facility. Sadly, even though it was the the hottest summer, it actually rained on the morning that we had scheduled our (laughs) tennis. (laughs) But so we took my friend's daughter, Nellie, to come, and she's 21, and she had never played tennis in her whole life growing up in Sweden. She she was the one who said that they didn't have it in public schools or anything, and, and none of her friends played. She was more of a skateboarder, and she played, I guess, the sport where you play hockey inside on carpet yeah yeah it's called innebandy uh, it's a big sport in sweden uh partly due to the weather i think and also you don't if you compare it to ice hockey which is another big sport you don't need all the gear uh you don't need an ice rink uh, so it's um it's far less uh, far more um, available for people to play she was a natural she was very athletic had great hand-eye coordination she really played well you could tell that it was like jedi if she had been identified early <laughs> she would be very talented <laughs> yeah uh, she plays i mean it's called floorball in in um, english but if you play that sport i think i mean you're hitting a ball about the size of a tennis ball with a stick kind of like you were if you were playing baseball in a way like you said, the hand-eye coordination is there already, so I think it should be quite easy to transition. Then tennis has, I think, one of the issues for tennis in general, which which really can't, I guess, be fixed, but that's uh, it, it's quite difficult to get into it and become good enough quickly to really enjoy it. It takes some time to learn the proper tennis mechanics and be able to hit the ball with consistency and, and play rallies which is also a beauty to the sport that it's quite difficult to master but there's also such a you know starting strip for people to get into it you know yeah it's definitely challenging uh, for beginners to get in and then you're also hanging out with people who love the sport and don't want to play with beginners yeah exactly. <laughs> so you get a lot of that the experience that i had at stick Tuna was so amazing because we registered online to play at the court uh, they sent us a code to the space we went there early in the morning, entered the code. No one was in the facility there. It was completely unchaperoned. We just went in, played. Uh, we reserved for two hours. In the second hour, another two people came, and they were decent players. They played over there. But I was just stunned that there was such a high code of morality and integrity uh, that you could just go, play, and then leave. There was no supervision. Uh, it was a multi-million dollar facility very unusual for an American. I felt like that was the culture of Sweden, the personality of of Sweden. And so I just wondered, how does personality and culture affect the game of tennis in Sweden? I think that's a good point you have there. I think it's, I mean, in Sweden in general, you can do everything online. So you don't need to do, uh, you can get divorced online. You can do um, (laughs) what you, your taxes, anything you can, you can do it online. Kind of becoming a cash free society as well. You never use use any cash, use mobile transfer, mobile payments, hardly visa cards anymore. So it's, it's really kind of forefront in some ways. Uh, There is definitely a high level of trust. It's always been. I think it's it's been a lot more. It's it's obviously the the country is growing, and it's maybe not as trustworthy anymore, like in the 80s when we was almost naive. But that that's really how it works in Sweden. You just sign up, and then you can access the court. It's quite easy since you can do everything on online. It's easy to get going in that sense. Um, I think it's mainly the cost that could be an issue for people to try out to trying out the sport. Obviously, being and that you have to play indoors for such a long part of the season uh, is is one of the main issues, I think. 
We went to uh, the courts with very, very old rackets because I didn't bring my racket and they had old equipment. And it was so funny because they had metal rackets left over probably from <laughs> the 70s and the 80s, very small head size. And there were a couple of brands that I had never heard of as well that they had brought. I don't know if they were just very generic, but is there a Swedish brand for tennis? There is. Well, I'm, I'm not 100% sure it's Swedish uh, or maybe it was and now it's somewhere else, but it's called Treturn. They have pretty good tennis balls. I think before, back then, they used to make rackets as well. I don't think you can find rackets these days. There is not really another Swedish uh, tennis brand except for um, uh, Robin Söderling who has now his own brand, no tennis rackets, but tennis balls and strings and uh, grips. Uh, so I think you might have seen that brand uh, laying around. Yeah, actually, we have that in America, but we call it tree torn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tree torn. Yeah, yeah. Tree we say in Swedish, but it's <laughs> We're a probably saying pronunciation it thing. How was it playing with the Soderling tennis balls? They're really, I, I like them a lot. I think they're, um, I, I like kind of heavier balls that you, you get more dwell time on the on the string bed. They have pretty good bounce to them, like quite even bounce. They don't bounce up too high. They don't bounce too low. Uh, so for a tennis ball, I think he has done a good job developing that product. I think it, it really works. I actually use their strings as well. So um, usually I'm skeptical when someone, some famous person launches a brand, but I think the, the homework has been done there. So I think the, the products are, are, are pretty good, high quality stuff. It'd be interesting to compare Soderling's tennis balls and Federer's tennis balls, like the French Open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I did. The Federer balls are more, um, are definitely lighter, a bit more bouncy. I, I think they, they might be better for um, maybe less advanced players. The, the, the Soderling balls, I think advanced players appreciate them more, I think. Uh, you need to hit a bit harder for, the, for them to be really efficient. My sense was that it was very expensive to purchase equipment and even tennis balls in Sweden. It is extremely expensive. I, I was, um, when I moved back, I've been going for work now and then, but never to buy any tennis equipment or, and hardly to play tennis. Uh, it's, uh, if you go to a tennis shop, which is usually in the club, uh, so that's that their club shop, the prices are are extremely high, and I think if you have any internet savviness, you can easily find a much cheaper price online, buy it from Europe, uh, and just pay the small shipping fee, uh, if any. So uh, I'm I'm surprised that people still buy from an uh, from a tennis shop in Sweden, since it's um, much more expensive than just buying them online. I did spy out uh, some tennis equipment at a sports shop in a small city, and the rackets were in. American dollars, 250 to $300. And the tennis balls were like $8, which is considerably higher. And I, it might be because it was like a tourist trap kind of area, but I just was surprised that it was so expensive. I, no, I don't think it was a tourist trap in that sense. I think, I don't know if it's, I mean, we, we have high taxes in Sweden, uh, etc. So maybe there's a reason to, for the, ten, the small tennis shops to survive that they need to have these prices. It, it, they're quite high. Usually it's, they're even more for tennis balls, like a pack of balls. If you buy it, if you forget to bring your own balls to the tennis court and if you buy it at the shop there, it can be up to... 10 12 bucks easily wow yeah so it that that's also a part so if you're paying 35 bucks for the court you're paying 10 bucks for the tennis balls uh it adds up quickly and you, then you have only one hour you know so that's a barrier for a lot of people to just try the sport and enjoy it because of the cost
I can see how that would be prohibitive. You probably just have to have a lot of money as a family to have your children pursue tennis in Sweden. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think there even been like documentaries on Swedish television about there are these uh, tennis families where maybe one or two of the kids, they play tennis and the, the parents are adamant that they're going to be professionals. I think we have one or two famous examples in Sweden. Uh, but it it shows like they they need to be two top lawyers or something for them to be able to do this, um, and it has so far not really reached any success. There hasn't been any success stories from that kind of situation. But it shows how much money needs to go into the the private coaching needed, a coach to travel to the tournaments, all the travel expenses and hotels and. Uh, all the things required when you want to become a tennis player. It's not like you can travel on a team bus or play just locally. You, you need to travel quite a bit uh, to be a tennis player. And you need to get some really good results to make any money. And then you can start paying off your own expenses with your prize money. But it, it takes a long while to get there. And uh, I think that's a barrier. I don't know what our excuse is here in America. We have free tennis courts, very inexpensive equipment. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, lo- lots of great. access and support and and still still we're struggling what, what do you think it is um what, what the situation in in american tennis i mean you're getting some players younger players now they're they're coming but it's not i mean for the size and and history in the sport it, it should be more i guess yeah i think a lot of it is the lack of interest i think that we don't have a national push behind it i think the u.s open was a perfect example of it the u.s open is the largest sporting event in the united states over 700,000 people it's run by the usta it's amazing that so many people go there and pay for that experience and yet even though it's the largest tennis experience it really doesn't trickle down to growing the game in the way that you would think it should and the news that comes out of the u.s open that becomes global is the drama with serena not not anything yeah, about the tennis of course says yeah and i think i mean you you would need to have it's an amazing event of, of course but you need you would need to have maybe uh well serena has won it x number of times but you might need to have a male champion as well to really make an impact on the sport there um i mean you, you obviously have all the facilities you have the people there but uh, I mean, sometimes it's as easy as TV coverage or, or just that one player that is a role model that everybody likes and looks up to. Uh, I think I don't know how the situation is in, in Switzerland around Federer or I mean, in Spain, you have Rafa and uh, there's a big tennis interest has been for a long time. But then you have a sport like paddle, which is growing immensely there as well. So that's a big competitor to tennis. So have you met some of these uh, legends from Sweden? The, the Swedish legends, I have not met a lot of them. I have met Björkman, Jonas Björkman, fantastic doubles player. Sure. Uh, Thomas Johansson, he won the Australian Open once. It was kind of a one-off thing. Those are two good players. I have met Niklas Kulti, was also a good player. Uh, one of those in the same generation. But otherwise, I haven't met Borg, which I would like to, obviously, and Edberg. Federer, I met. Uh, he's not Swedish, obviously, but then he was coached by Edberg, and I talked to him uh, about Stefan and um, what, what he kind of had brought on to his game. And it was an interesting discussion since it was kind of two heroes at one go for me. Sure. Uh, although Stefan sure. was not in the room, you know. I saw a picture yeah. of Federer and you on your website. Sh- share with us a little bit about what he said, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I think, I mean, I asked about the relationship uh, and I, I mean, Stefan is such a mellow guy. He's he's not really the most bombastic dude. 
you'll find. And I asked together, they seem to have a really good relate. They seem to have a really good relationship, uh, joking and, and understanding each other. I had the feeling that they they really liked each other as as persons, and I think that was uh, one reason for the success. I think Stefan really, and that's the feeling I got from Roger as well, is that Stefan really urged Feather in the right way to become more aggressive, to rely more on his backhand wing, uh, which was always Edberg's biggest weapon was uh, besides the volley, but he had a much better backhand than he had a forehand. Federer doesn't have that problem, but uh, he had kind of the opposite. So I think he, um, besides just uh, being kind of the right guy in that time, although he didn't win any slams with Stefan, I think he, he pushed him in the right direction at that point in his career. And I could really sense the enormous respect they have for each other. I think that was that was really clear quickly that they, they were a good match, I think. And I was really happy when they, they announced that Stefan was his coach. I think that... And that back then, I, I, when that was announced, when they started working together, I think Federer was still in that 2013 uh, slump right. uh, when, where people kind of had written him off and thought he would, he would leave the sport or retire soon. The R and, word, uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. And it was it was a tough time for us tennis fans. But uh, then I think, um, although Jubicic did a lot of, has done a lot of good for Federer's game and I really uh, pushed him on to win a few more slams as well, I think Stefan was the kind of first step in that direction to kind of regain the trust in his own game and regain the, the belief that he could actually be competitive for the number one spot in the rankings as well. Yeah, I thought Lubacic was such an interesting choice. I think everyone was surprised by that, and yet it's reaped deep benefits. Exactly. I was very surprised. I think, I mean, they were <laughs> they were playing at the same time in their careers as well, so it seemed really odd to go with a guy who has uh, had worse results and <laughs> been your kind of um, played in the same era. But I think Federer has really looked for people who he could kind of treat as friends or be more of a, you know, a, a guy to just stand behind you and help you on a, almost like a friendship level instead of having a coach to tell him what to do. I don't, I think he knows pretty well what to do, but he needs kind of a, a different type of support. And I think both Edberg and Jubicic pro- provided that same support for him. And I think that's why he kind of returned to success after working with those two players. Even though he's never acknowledged Lubacic as the backhand advocate, it's kind of amazing to watch uh, Lubacic versus Nadal at Indian Wells where he's stepping in on that backhand and just ripping it as a single-hander against Nadal. He actually beat Nadal at Indian Wells. So I've watched that video often. A very similar motion, stepping in, and a lot of what Roger did in 2017 to win the Australian. Yeah, I think he was a huge influence. I think Stefan pushed Roger to be more aggressive and play kind of the saber attack and move in more and more and more to shorten points and, and use his um, great hands at the net, etc. But then Jubicic changed the whole um, way he approached his backhand wing because it does, it used to be a more of a passive shot, a lot more slicing. And now he comes over the ball a lot more and he's aggressive with it. And uh, the whole reason I think he won the Australian Open and and then won two Masters after that was that his, his, the change in his backhand was, was quite huge for a player who's already so good and has done so much uh, competitively that he could improve his game so much in one wing was should be an inspiration to a lot of players because there's you, you know you can still learn things even at Federer's level you know and one of the greatest matches in history I think against the greatest competitor Nadal it was quite a challenge 
Yeah, the sport needs more of these. I mean, we always, uh, us tennis nerds and fans of the sport, always look forward to that kind of matchup. I mean, there are other match. Rafa and Djokovic is also a good matchup, but where you really feel like it, they're laying everything on the line and it's strategy, it's physical fitness, it's kind of shot making. Those matches have completely everything. And I think um, you could win a lot of spectators and people interested to the sport just by these matches. I guess tennis in general needs to be a bit uh, wary now that when they retire and stop having these amazing results that it's going to be we need new legendary matchups that will be very important for the sport I think. I think tennis is a lot like jazz in the sense that if you go and see it live you're really impressed with the physical presence of what it takes to create that kind of artistry. You mentioned the Stockholm Open. Is there a lot of tennis being played, matches in Sweden? Yeah, I've um, I've been to Stockholm Open. I've seen Federer there when he played. I've I've seen some tennis. There is some. Uh, there are some ITF tournaments you can watch. Um, I think a few challengers as well. Um, there is tennis happening. You can go to a court, for example. I played at Salk, which is one of the clubs there, and you have the top player in Sweden standing next to you on the court next to you and, and hitting balls at double the speed you're hitting pretty much uh, <laughs> which is inspirational so um, if you go to the right clubs at the right time you will have you have good companions there and to be inspired by so there's good tennis played just needs to be a few more players actually competing I think one of the issues we have is that we had a really good we had a, a decent set of, of juniors coming up but after some struggles maybe with results in the beginning they um, they stop playing or they stop traveling to play competitively even if they have the potential maybe not to be a top 50 player but at least to play hopefully at 150 or 100 level um, they give up a bit too soon I think one of the issues we have that it's hard to find players that are keen enough to just keep fighting or uh, and keep playing tennis professionally in America we also have college tennis which is a very strong development tool for anyone who wants to go pro is there anything like that in Sweden not really. I think that's um, one of my friends, uh, close friends, actually played college tennis. It's it's one of the best, I think, programs for becoming a good tennis player, uh, a professional tennis player. Uh, so I think that's very important for U.S. tennis and, and also tennis worldwide because there's so many players from other countries that if they want to become professional tennis players, they should go to college in, in the U.S. Uh, we don't really have that at all in Sweden. So I think that that would be amazing if there was. There, there have been initiatives where a team of um, we have a team called team of, of ex top players they run an academy called good to great and they've now made a, a huge tennis center in um, outside stockholm and that could be a, a good in I mean, they, they bring on international students as well and they, they try to create this group of players that travel internationally and they get good support uh, it's not cheap to send your player there, your son or uh, whatever there, but it's uh, it's a good initiative and I think a step in the right direction. But we, we have nothing close to college tennis in the U.S. And isn't good to great, wasn't it started by Magnus Norman, the coach for yeah. Stan? Where yeah, he's, he's, he's a part of it. There's three guys. Uh, I don't remember the name of the other two right now, but uh, yeah, he's, he's a part of it. And he's there coaching players. Uh, if you check out his Instagram or whatever, he uh, he's there. I think he's still traveling with Stan uh, a bit, as much as he can, and time allows. But um, otherwise, he's there trying to coach new um, talent. And I don't think he gets enough credit. I mean, he was world number two. He won 12 singles titles and obviously an incredible coach for Stan, really helped his game tremendously. 
Yeah, I think I mean in Sweden you don't see much credit to te- to any tennis players anymore. It's 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 not really talked about in the media as much. Uh, if if there's any media coverage on tennis, it's if it's Roger or Rafa playing. I mean, I think those two still still get a lot of readers to newspapers and and tabloids online, etc. But you don't have a lot of you don't get a lot of appreciation for a player. Also, with our history, it, it's tough to become a legend in Swedish tennis because you have so many other guys that have done more. So I think it's a bit of a shame for Norman, who was such an excellent, excellent player and also even even more excellent coach. Really understands the nature of the game. He works tremendously hard. Now he's actually uh, working on uh, becoming kind of an Ironman guy. So he's really uh, competing in that sport now instead uh, while he's coaching tennis. But he has a, a really good eye for tennis and a good understanding on how to maximize potential from a player and i think we could see that with with Wawrinka when he, he he had always struggled a bit with i think the mental side of uh, mental and slash physical side of tennis and b- before he had norman but the change when he entered the team was uh, quite uh, amazing yeah and those Djokovic matches in the finals of the slams uh, those were grinders and incredible matches yeah, I think among uh, among true classics in in modern tennis for sure. Uh, when you see, I mean th- those two guys, Djokovic is always a wall, and when he's on his game. Uh, but if there's one player who can really break that wall down, it's it's uh, Stan. So I think that those matches are amazing to watch just for the kind of shot making required by Stan to to win points, and he's doing it over and over and over again. It's uh, very impressive to watch. Well, Jonas, you obviously are a tennis nerd. Uh, You love tennis with a passion, and that's what this show is all about. So we're so excited to have you on the show, and I want people to go check out your channel. I've really benefited so much by watching Tennis Nerd, especially your racket reviews. You're so good at reviewing rackets and uh, sharing that information with the tennis community. I know on YouTube you have 1,100 subscribers with almost half a million views, so people are definitely listening to you. So tell us a little bit about Tennis Nerd and how that developed. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, It's always fun to hear people um, listening or watching uh, the content I produce. Uh, Tennis Nerd started kind of as a a side thing, as it always does. uh, Tennis is obviously my passion. It hasn't been my my work as much, uh, but my passion and... I've always been playing around with rackets. I've tested customizing rackets where you add weight to different areas, trying new strings, trying new grips, everything. And I just love that part of the game, also the sensation of when you hit the tennis ball is different with each racket. So uh, it, it's kind of like a rabbit hole when you when you start going in there, but it's very <laughs> <Right>. fascinating uh, <laughs> journey. And then I realized like there's not really enough accurate information about these about gear in general i think i mean a lot of it is i'm not selling any tennis rackets so it's it would be a more of a i wouldn't have anything uh, on the back of my mind to get people to to buy a certain racket i would try to be as honest as i could yeah great resource yeah exactly i i think i mean and kind of tennis blogging about gear wasn't really around i started the website quite a long time ago but then I I wrote just a little bit and then grew over the years and then I started playing around a bit with YouTube it's always good to record your tennis sessions it's one of the best ways to improve as a player I think really truly believe this if, if you care to watch your own uh, your own playing afterwards it's, it's always a shock when you <laughs> see how bad your technique is or what you need to improve but as you improve that it becomes quite enjoyable to uh, to watch and to learn from so um 
I always encourage people to bring your iPhone or whatever smartphone you have or, or buy a cheap camera and a tripod and then start recording your sessions. Uh, I think that's one of the easiest ways and cheapest ways to become a better player. But yeah, so a huge passion for gear, started writing about it, started digging into it more and more. Um, I, I try to dig up as much information. I, I know a lot of people on tour, players and stringers and uh, coaches and some umpires as well. Uh, so I try to dig up as much information as I can about what players really play. So one of the most popular pieces of content is, you know, what does Novak Djokovic really play? He, he doesn't. He endorses one racket and he plays another. People know that now, but a lot of people don't either. So I think I'm trying to get that information out because I think that's important. So just general bringing out as much information, hopefully helpful information as I can about tennis gear mainly, but also other things related to tennis. I think it's really helpful. I've really enjoyed your racket reviews. I watch them every time that you post them. So no, at least you have one, <laughs> but you obviously have a lot more. Do you get a lot of response from tennis players all around the world? Yeah, it's it's that's one of the things that <laughs> it starts to take up a lot of my time now. <laughs> I didn't realize it would be so popular, uh, but I love it. I, I mean, it's uh, it's not money in the bank, but it's kind of uh, stuff that goes to the heart instead. And uh, that's really, I mean, it's one thing you learn when, as you get older in life is that you value kind words and and interactions a lot more than than money in the end. And I think I do this as a passion, and I connect with so many players and tennis lovers every day. I get comments on the website and emails sent. I try to answer them all uh, on the Facebook page. Uh, people just discussing rackets, tennis in general. So that's one of the, the best things that have come out of this. Is, and then sometimes I've managed to meet up with players and, and we play a set or two if I'm traveling or they're traveling to where I am. So just a great feeling to know that the tennis community is so large and it's, there's so many passionate people about our sport out there. And I think that's that's what has made the most impact on me also to, to feel like I want to keep doing this. Although it takes a lot of time and effort, uh, I really love doing this. I really love connecting with people about tennis, tennis rackets and, and all that, all connect, things connected to it. So it's um, been a great journey so far. That's wonderful. We're so lucky to have your resource out there. You're available on YouTube, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Just search Tennis Nerd and you'll find Jonas. We really appreciate your time. I, I'm just one more of those tennis things that take up your time. <laughs> no, but it's great. I, I There's nothing more entertaining than talking about tennis, I think. I, well, play, playing tennis, obviously, but I think it's a good second. I'm, I'm right there with you. I really enjoy it. And that's what this podcast is all about, is really tennis community and the tennis passion at the local level. I'm really trying to encourage people to keep in the game, to play the game, to express their passion. And you're doing that so well. So thanks for being such a great example for all of us. Well, thanks to you too. I think uh, we, need, uh, we need the community to keep, keep active and I, you're doing a really good job yourself as well. So I think it's uh, we encourage more and more people to get into it and, and be open and, and spread the, the tennis love. I sure hope I get to hit with you someday, especially in Malta, because that sounds like a dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're here, just uh, message me. Uh, same if I go to the US. I, LA, I was maybe two years I, I went, but um, I always like to go there. So for sure, we should hit. I think that's that's a good thing to keep in mind if you if you meet people online or have interactions. I think it's always nice to meet up in, in real life and kind of get a, 
a proper face to the person and, and you know, if possible, play some tennis. I think that's, uh, I, I've done it a few times already and it, you, you make friends for life. I think it's a great, great thing to do. Yeah, I have a great community here in Los Angeles of players, about 60 people that we all play together and then we have big barbecues, we celebrate birthdays, we do all the holidays together. So I really appreciate the community aspect of tennis. It's much more than just the game. Yeah, for sure. I think it's one of the sports that really uh, lend well in all ages, all levels to that community feel that people really love the sport and then they kind of can socialize around it. Um, you can build team leagues, uh, create kind of recreational tournaments. Uh, it's really a sport that uh, opens up for the social aspect as well. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you and we'll keep in touch online and really appreciate your time. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you doing this. Great, <laughs> great stuff. Keep doing it. Uh, right. I will keep listening. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. All right, man. Okay. Take bye. care. Ciao, ciao. Hey, Val. I'm looking at my Tennis Pal app right now, and I clicked on the feed button. The feed button has a lot of really great news, and I'm super excited about the first issue, which is Federer eases into ninth win at Basel. Did you watch that match at all? Oh, you know it. <laughs> I was actually kind of nervous in the beginning. He was a uh, slow start, got broken the first set. And the second set. And the set. second set, yeah. He was, was down like, zero two. On? But, yeah. yeah. Marius Koppel, he really showed himself. I mean, he, uh, I I don't know what his ranking is. I think he's in the 80s or something. Okay. I thought I heard I thought I remember hearing the number 60, but maybe that's after this getting to the final. He played so well and he made it to the final. So that's kind of amazing. Yes. Yes, he was playing. He was playing really good. He was playing great. And so that news is right here in the Tennis Pal feed as well as here's one that says examining the WTA through transitional lenses, which I think is a great article to read. And Svitolina beats Stevens to win the WTA finals. Wow, that yes. was a match. So if you click on these articles, they'll actually take you to like ESPN or Yahoo, mostly ESPN, I think. So it's kind of cool to have just one place for all your tennis news in the tennis app. I like that. Yeah, I'm definitely a fan because for me, when, I, uh, when I'm looking for any sports things, uh, I like to read sports articles as a pastime. And uh, I end up on Yahoo Sports, ESPN. I go to the ATP website, then I go to the WTA website, and I'm reading all these articles. But here it just has everything tennis-related all mashed onto one page. It's great. Yeah, and hey, look, here's our article for Tennis Pal Chronicles. Yay! Awesome. They're sharing our news about our last podcast, which was searching for the spirit of Stefan Edberg in Sweden. That's so cool. So yeah, they can find all the information here as well as the show notes in the feed on the Tennis Pal app. We want to thank the Tennis Pal app for sponsoring this show. And the app is available for the iTunes and Android platforms, so jump on it. In addition, we want to personally reward the first person who signs up for the Tennis Pal app listening to this show with a free Nike sweatband just for listening, and we'll announce the winner on the next episode. All you have to do is sign up for the app and use the word PODCAST in all caps. PODCAST and you get a free Nike sweatband courtesy of Love Set Match. We're happy to have you guys listening. And thanks so much for your support. And now it's time for Fan Favorites. We asked a few passionate friends to share news about their favorite players. Great. 
Hey everyone, it's your tennis pal Val with your fan fave report on the great Serena Williams. What are some of the latest Serena headlines, you ask? Well, the big one that I couldn't seem to get away from surfing the web was that the commissioner of the WWE has her eyes on Serena. Yes, given the recent success that ex-MMA champion Ronda Rousey had in her transition into the wrestling world, they already started to plan for the future. And they are not being shy about letting the world know that they think Serena Williams would be the perfect fit for their franchise. It's still unclear when Serena will hang up the racket for good. And as of now, there are no comments on how Serena would actually feel about joining the WWE. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. On to one of Serena's more favorable side jobs, fashion. Yes, you know you've been scrolling on TV and seen Serena doing infomercials on the Home Shopping Network, selling her clothing line. Well, Serena's newest creation is a pair of form-fitting, high-waisted jeans that she used her own body to design the mold. So it's ready for all your curves, ladies. Recently, her blazer sold out quickly after her BFF, Meghan Markle, was seen wearing it during a trip to Australia. Also, Serena joined her ex-love interest, Common, in Chicago at the Lyric Opera House for a Creative Minds Talk, The Art of Storytelling. I'm not sure how that went, but I hope to hear feedback soon. That was only last night, so I can share with everyone what they shared with the audience. And that's all for now, everyone. Catch you later. Hello, this is Tanya, your Novak Djokovic expert. It's my pleasure being with you once again. And this time I have great news for Novak Djokovic fans all around the world, because he has literally got back to the top of tennis. After Paris Masters, he will be crowned number one after Rafa Nadal's withdrawal from the tournament no matter what happens later in Paris. This is an incredible accomplishment by Serb because he is the first player to be ranked outside top 20, then number one in same season since Merit Safin in 2000. Djokovic was as slow as number 22 this year. But as you already know, a few months ago Djokovic was far from the top of his game. In a recent interview for the Serbian talk show, maybe yes, maybe no, he opened his soul admitting that he seriously thought about retiring from tennis. After the Miami Open, he told his team and family that he wanted to end his career. As a matter of fact, they were too shocked, said Djokovic. They were stunned. I was not sure about what was coming out of my mouth. And every single one of us, regardless of profession or field of work, goes through those moments. But this wasn't the first time that the Serb was in a difficult position. Back to 2010, he had health problems, including respiratory problems and inability to cope with the heat, endurance problems and blurry vision. But everything changed after he decided to change the diet. He's talking about the importance of a quality food in a new docu-series Transcendence, Life Beyond the Ordinary. You know, I've, I've experienced prior to 2010 Australian Open many struggles on the court, respiratory problems, uh, inability to cope with the heat, endurance issues, even though I was training hard. I was feeling that I'm losing that kind of uh, fuel in my tank. I was feeling weaker and then all of a sudden the, the, the vision um, you know, it became different. I didn't see the court as wide as it was at the beginning of the match. And, uh, 
you know, I had blurred vision. I, you know, I couldn't catch breath after um, after each point was finished. And um, in in no time, he was he was a winner of the match. And I remember that between fourth and fifth set, I went out to to throw up and. Um, felt my stomach was was aching. I felt my you know energy was so low, and I was just my nose was blocked. And there was plenty of things going on, and that was not the first time. Um, I didn't understand that there is this nutrition part that was blocking me in a way because I wasn't eating correctly, even though I thought that I was. Coming from the culture where we're based a lot on the gluten, which is in the wheat, and we have bakeries in each corner. So I, I had breads and different bread baskets each day, even with, eating pizza, and I would have a little bread on the side. That's how you know, integrated that kind of uh, culture of eating was in, 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 uh, in our region. And uh, also a lot of, a lot of meat. and and sugar, you know, um, refined sugar. But I didn't know that, that that would cause, all of these things would cause feeling of, of being helpless on the court and feeling of being powerless. So then I met Dr. Igor Chetovic and he has actually watched that match in Australian Open earlier that year and he felt the need to to get in touch with me and to help me out. And um, he received the data that I have a great sensitivity on gluten, no celiac disease, but great sensitivity intolerance to gluten, to dairy products, and, and obviously to refined sugar. In a recent press conference, Novak Djokovic recognized once again that having the support of his family, which was constantly making sacrifices during his childhood, was the key to become a professional player. It's not always easy, it's a rare family, especially coming from less developed countries like Serbia and this region where it's a struggle economically. Djokovic explained, it was for my father borrowing money and so forth. It was a tough decision to make, but they strongly believed him and my mother and a couple of other people, you know, and they allowed me to be where I am, Djokovic concluded. And he didn't let them down. He accomplished almost everything that could be accomplished in tennis. Never gave up and thanks to that he will most likely be the year-end number one for the fifth time. That was all from me for now. I can't wait to bring you more news about Djokovic. Hello, this is Jordan McMahon from Los Angeles, California, with your Maria Sharapova report. The end of the WTA 2018 season has been particularly quiet for the Russian, who withdrew from Beijing, Tianjin, where she was the defending champion, and Moscow in order to recover from a shoulder injury. Her last match was in the fourth round of the US Open back at the beginning of September. Starting the year with a singles ranking of 60, Maria will close out 2018 after moving up to 29 as she continues to mount her push back into the top 10. Maria plans to return at the Shenzhen tournament in China come January of 2019. But I think there's certainly, you know, players that come in and out and there are players that are still around that I started with. And, and yeah, and I've, I've spoken about the level of the game um, rising quite a lot. And that, that's, you know, maybe a few years ago you looked at a draw and you, you could get by a few rounds and um, use it as a warm-up and preparation. But that 
as you've seen by the results and upsets throughout the maybe last few years um, in the beginning of events, um, that isn't so anymore. Um, so you have to come prepared and ready and, and all the things. And maybe that's the biggest difference that I see. Off the court, Maria's been keeping busy with her sponsorships and business ventures. Maria's been working with a long-standing sponsor, Nike, to launch the new L.A. Cortez X Maria Sharpova, a casual wear sneaker for women designed by Maria herself, who teamed up with a group of female entrepreneurs to launch the sneaker in New York City last month. In this campaign, it was, it was incredibly special um, to future women um, that no matter what they faced in their lives, no matter what country they came from, no matter what obstacles they faced, they found a way to rise above it and, and be here today enjoying all of us. Maria's also been working hard on her candy enterprise, Sugar Pova, which has recently been rolled out to the Hudson News Group and SBE's chain of nationwide hotels. The star can often be seen promoting the brand on her social media. Marie's been in the news this week giving an interview to Tennis World USA, where she discussed the early days in her tennis career. In particular, her first Grand Slam title win in that classic match against Serena Williams at the 2004 Wimbledon Championships. She opened up about the expectations she felt after the championships to win every single match, realising that the reality was she would have to continue to prove herself time and time again, a challenge which she continues to face as she strives to get back to the top of her game. We look forward to the turn of the year and once again seeing the Russian back in action. I'll see you next time. Hi, this is Fiona from Australia with your Roger Federer fan report. So the last time I was here with this report was after the US Open, so we have a little bit to catch up on. Since then, Roger has played three tournaments, the Lever Cup, Shanghai and Basel. So just beginning with the Lever Cup, as we know, Team Europe was successful again for the second consecutive year and Roger played a part by winning his singles matches against Kyrgios and Isner and he actually played doubles with Djokovic for the first time as well, except unfortunately they lost their doubles match. And then Zverev got Team Europe over the line with a singles win and they lifted the trophy. Then moving on, the indoor swing officially started for Roger at the Shanghai Rolex Masters. He had a bit of a rocky tournament overall. He went in as a defending champion, but in the opening two rounds against Medvedev and Bautista Agu, he dropped sets against both of them, but he got through the matches. And then he played Nishikori in the quarters and managed to reach the semis, but unfortunately he lost to Chorich in the semifinals and he was unable to defend his title. So that made us a bit nervous going into the second indoor tournament for Roger, which was Basel, which just happened last week. Just ahead of Basel, Roger revealed in an interview with a Swiss journalist that he had been carrying a wrist injury for three to four months from June through to September, and this period would have included Stuttgart, Wimbledon, and up until the US Open. The injury impacted his forehand apparently, which kind of became evident if you go back and think about how he played against Anderson at Wimbledon and his forehand was pretty off in that match. Anyway, there was a little bit of debate about why Roger revealed this information um, so long after the injury occurred, but I think most of all he was just asked, it's probably better for him to say it later on rather than to say it straight after a match because that can sometimes detract from the winning opponent's victory. The details of when he revealed it don't really matter to me, but I think most of all what matters is that if he had an injury that he's overcome it now, I really hope 
he has. So moving on, we finished up a really special week in Basel. Um, it's special anyway at that tournament all the time because it's Roger's home tournament. But um, he played his way through the draw and he won his fourth title of the year. He won his ninth title in Basel and his 99th career title. So I think it was a pretty astounding achievement. Um, the 99 titles puts him one away from 100 and also 10 titles away from Jimmy Connor's all-time record. Um, even though the numbers sound great, I think the most important thing about that week is just when you see Roger play in Basel, it gives you such this unique feeling of a connection with him and because it's his hometown and where he grew up you can kind of even empathetically feel like how happy Roger is just being back there you know just walking out for a a Basel finals was always my dream maybe just even or just playing on the center court was a was a thrill 21 years ago for the qualies um, so when you sit there and the trophy ceremony is starting and the ball kids walk out I remember being in their shoes and me walking out, you know, with my friends at the time that I did it for two years. So, um, you know, and then I give them all a medal, thank them for their efforts. And I feel like I'm looking at myself in some ways, you know, uh, when Wayne Ferreira and uh, other great players gave me my first medal here in Basel. So to come through and uh, win again here in my hometown, never knowing if this might be your last time that you had the opportunity to play a finals to maybe win for the last time here. In, the, in my city, um, it obviously means a lot to me and it becomes very emotional, so emotional always at the very end. It was a great week in Basel and now we're back at, in the middle of the Paris Masters and Roger actually decided to enter the tournament after all. So he's been absent since 2015 there and he's missed it a few times previously too and that's mostly because it falls in the week straight after Basel so it's really nice to see him back in Paris and I think it's great because it shows that he's match ready and he can still play back-to-back -back tournaments so I really hope this week in Paris goes great and then shortly after we have the world tour finals so the season really is coming to a close but thanks again for listening to my report and I hope to join you guys again soon. Bye. Hi everyone, this is Christine in Budapest, Hungary with the Rafa Fan Report. Well, as usual, even though Rafa hasn't been playing much tennis, uh, he has been quite busy. There was a, there was a flood uh, caused by torrential rains on the island of Mallorca, which is where Rafa lives. And he was really gracious and opened up his academy to flood victims. He was helping out. He was doing all kinds of things and just being Rafa helping out with that. And uh, he was he was slated to come back to the Paris Masters, but suffered a freak injury at the last minute and was forced to withdraw. As a result, he will lose his number one ranking for sure to Novak Djokovic. So that will set up a very interesting beginning of next year. As far as his injury goes, Rafa said that uh, it was an abdominal injury. He said that he felt okay to play, but the doctors were concerned that the abdomen problem could become progressively worse and that it could tear uh, if he were to play in Paris. I arrived here a couple of days ago. As everybody knows, I have been outside of the competition since... Um since the US Open, so I take it my, my time off. I come back, that was great to be here in Paris for, uh, for a couple of days and practice with the, 
with the guys I enjoy it I, I feel myself uh, in terms of tennis better than what I, I really thought uh, one week ago but it's true that uh, the last um, few days I start to feel a little bit the, the abdominal so uh, especially when I was serving and I was checking with the, with the doctor and the doctor says that uh, it's recommended to to not play because uh, if I continue the, the abdominal maybe can can break and uh, can be a, a major thing and um, I really don't want that. It has been a tough year for me since that moment in terms of injuries so I, I want to avoid uh, <laughs> drastic things uh, and um, if maybe I can play today uh, but the doctor says if I want to play the, the tournament uh, I want to try to win the tournament. Uh, will that dominant will break for sure? So will be not fair and not good for me and for nobody to to go inside the the court knowing that probably the full tournament will not be possible to play. Uh, so that's that's it. Uh, <laughs> of course, I'm not happy, but uh, of course, I have to to accept and stay positive here. Unfortunately, he can't play again, and it looks like he will not be able to play in the ATP Tour Finals, although I haven't heard any confirmation of that yet. The last bit of news is about Djokovic and Rafa playing an exhibition in Saudi Arabia, and that has been a really hot topic because of what happened with the Saudi journalist uh, who was killed there. Lots of people are hoping that Rafa and uh, Novak decide to withdraw from the exhibition in Saudi Arabia, and we will see what happens with that. I'm not sure that even if Rafa wanted to play, I'm not sure that he can play. I'm curious to, to hear what the Novak fan reporter has to say about that. All right, goodbye for now. It's the end of the tennis season, and we'll be looking forward to the beginning of next season with all its excitement. Hello everyone, this is Peter, also known as Tyguy84 on Twitter, and I'm here to bring you your latest fan report update for Andy Murray, or Andre, as Jamie Delgado, Andy's coach, calls him. Quite a few people found out he calls Andy this when he posted a picture together on November 5th with the caption, Pumped to join Andre as a member at Wimbledon. Think he did it the easy way, but oh well. Jamie posted a picture of himself in a field with an American flag emoji and factually stated, America also has some beautiful countryside with a smiley face and a hashtag of Philadelphia. Andy has been prolific on social media on Facebook and Instagram. My friend Jamie Mack alerted me to Andy's presence in Philadelphia at a club where he is rehabbing. He's been in the city of brotherly love since before D.C. I've seen many of his posts this summer with his location being in Philadelphia. After Jamie alerted me, I got a message from my other friend on Twitter, Sam. Her username is snation85 on Twitter, so please follow her. She's amazing. She told me he's been sighted at Philly, and a lady with the Instagram username Growing Up Global met Andy on her birthday with her three other friends. She posted this on Instagram. You might know that I love my birthday and tennis. So today, 
at our annual birthday tennis get-together with our foursome all turning the same prime number with birthdays within days of each other, we had an amazing surprise. After the match, the club manager asked us if we'd seen Andy Murray. It took us a few seconds to register he's talking about THE Andy Murray, and once we did, we literally ran out to the parking lot as quickly as we could to catch him on our way out. We had pumpkin bread for him. Andy kindly responded to that Instagram post saying, Hope you all enjoyed the rest of your birthdays. Thanks for the pumpkin bread. In Philadelphia, he is seeing Bill Knowles, a specialist. Simon Briggs, a journalist from The Telegraph, wrote an article about his work in Philadelphia. My friend, policy analyst David Shore, also known as Tennis Loving Wonk on Twitter, told me about his video clip he took at the City Open of Andy swearing and saying, Gosh darn it, Bill. We tried to figure out who he was talking about, and so we figured out he was cursing at Bill Knowles instead of William Murray, his dad. Andy has been cited at the Gulf Mills Tennis Club in Pennsylvania for the past week. On Instagram, Nick Dorfling, a tennis pro from South Africa, has been taking a few videos and pictures with our Andy. My friend Rena, also known as underscore Arenka23, spelled I-R-E-N-K-A-23, underscore on Twitter, has been posting all about Andy's whereabouts too. On October 23rd, Andy posted a photo without caption. It was a light at the end of the tunnel. This made more than 38,000 of his fans on Instagram happy with a lot of likes. It was highlighted from a friend that Andy is now following Feminist Vibe on Instagram. As a self-proclaimed feminist, this doesn't surprise me at all. I know about Feminist Vibe and they are great. He also has posted multiple times in the past two months for World Wildlife Fund UK, since he is an ambassador. One of the post states, we are the first generation to know that we are destroying the world and we could be the last that can do anything about it. In another post, he shared a picture of an orangutan with the statistic, wildlife populations have plummeted 60% since 1970, with the statement, the Living Planet Report has shown today that our world is under threat like never before. He asked all of us to follow World Wildlife Fund, WWF UK, in all social media platforms and get involved. You can see the hashtags, hashtag toxic air, hashtag fight for your world, hashtag WWF UK, to see more on Twitter and Instagram for more stats about the world we live in today that's affecting the playing conditions for our favorite players around the globe. It's amazing that my favorite player is using his platform to champion women's rights, animal rights, and our human rights. He really is a social justice warrior with all of the positive connotations I'm implying. Just 16 hours ago, Jamie Delgado posted our Andy singing Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down. I'm guessing this is in response to America's election, as Andy is pretty political on social media. My friend Amanda said, as I showed her this video, it's definitely a song a lot of politicians use. I have heard it many times on campaign stops. Thank you so much for listening. This is Peter, also known as TyGuy84 on Twitter and Instagram, signing off. I hope you have a great day and a great night, y'all. I want to do a special where we're featuring the stories of each of the individual reporters. I think it would be so cool to find out why they love tennis, why their favorite player is who they are, 
and hear a little bit about some of their experiences as tennis fans' favorites. That is really cool. I would love to hear about that. Did you come up with that right now? Because that's your brilliant idea. No, no, I, I messaged it to you and I said, hey, I got this idea that I want to do. Oh, I don't, I read that message. I remember it very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. Hey, a big shout out to our sponsor, Tennis Pal. Please go download their tennis app. And that's one way that you can support the show is just going on to the Apple or Android platforms, downloading Tennis Pal app and supporting them as a way to say thank you for supporting our Tennis Pal Chronicles podcast. Yay. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to receive notifications on future episodes. And if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at pk at tennispalapp.com. May all your servers be aces, Val. Yay.